have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. I am your host, Strangely, and this is the podcast. And since you're listening to this, you are the friends. I hear Madonna's in a kerfuffle with the New York Times. Like, what year is it? There. I've commented on something in the current zeitgeist. Now let us speak of it no more. I have a great show for you this week. I've got an interview with one of my best friends in the whole world, Aaron J. Shea, banjo player and artist from Seattle. Awesome human. I can't wait for you to hear that. But first, let's get to our very first segment. Strangely recommends in 200 words or less. Including these 11. Who imposed this rule? Wait, does... Does this aside count? I... Fiddlesticks. Findings by Raphael Kroll-Zaidi with art by Graham Rameau. My dear friend Esther de Monteflores recommended the Findings from Harper's Magazine to me years ago, and since then I've always picked up a copy to read it when I see one lying around. The column is a collection of terse, factual statements summarizing recently published scientific studies. So you read things like, Australian researchers were trying to solve the problem of humans outliving their eyes, or pond snails on crystal meth are better at remembering the pokes from sharp sticks, or my personal favorite, in Scotland, most adults say it is acceptable for a man to marry his widow's sister. Only 65 words to go. On the one hand, these are funny because someone took the time to confirm something we all could have intuited naturally. On the other, they do inspire a sense of wonder at the variety and strangeness of the world. This book collects some standout excerpts from over the years with delightful New Yorker-style illustrations that somehow managed to make the dry reportage even funnier. Go read it. This is my chat with my friend Aaron Shea. I went to his house where we recorded this the dog that also lives there, uh, amazing Pomeranian by the name of Bruno, was present and occasionally making noise. So if you hear some kind of funny noises, this is because we actually recorded this at my friend Aaron's place. And so it's just sort of a little bit more of a casual setting than Aaron coming down to the studio. I hope you enjoy my chat with Aaron J. Shea. So Aaron, for those of my listeners who may not know you and your work, I don't know who would be interested in me <laughs> and my podcast and not. I'm sure they exist. Th there are a few. I'm sure that there are going to be lovely people sometime in the distant future who are like, I'm going to listen to every episode of Strangely and Friends, all 1,005. <laughs> Indubitably. They have, they have climbed over the paywall and they are now <laughs> here with us. Talk a little bit about what you do. Um, I'm a performer and a writer. I am passionate about telling stories. I'm passionate about um, interactive live experiences, um, both of the theatrical and the musical sense. I tend to tell stories about fictional worlds um, 
some fantastical, some science fictional, but all with some resemblance to our own world. So you, you mentioned that you're a fan of live performance, like, and, and like we, we've known each other for a long time and done a lot of house shows together and things like that. And you actually wrote the house show handbook and self-published that, like that is a book that exists now. Yes. What do you think it is about the intimate live show experience that is so compelling? I think intimate shows in what I call unconventional venues, uh, homes, warehouses, storefronts, things like that, is that it gets people out of the mode of a traditional concert. They're not at a bar, they're not at a cafe, they're not at a theater. They're in some place that they're not used to experiencing live performance. And so people let their guard down a little bit more than otherwise. They behave differently. In my experience, they treat the event with greater care because it seems like something that is special, something that is unusual, something that is outside of their normal context. And so they are open to things that they might not otherwise be open to. So it's sort of a, like, it, it kind of gets around the barriers that we put up in front of ourselves mm -hmm. when we relate to art. The fourth wall. Yes, the famous fourth wall that doesn't necessarily exist in a theatrical sense when you're going to a concert, but there is a bit of a wall. There is a dividing line between who is performing and who is consuming the performance. And when you take down that wall, when you take down the stage, when you put performance and audience in the same, on the same literal level, uh, people are more open to uh, interacting and being a part of the show itself. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like at a lot of the shows that we've done over the years, there will be moments of pure conversation that happen in the middle of a show. So like the performer will say something that really strikes a chord with someone in the audience and they'll say something back. And then instead of being like, oh, all right, it's my show, it's my show, the performer will continue to engage with what the audience member said. Like, because that, you can maintain that conversational atmosphere in a way that you couldn't if you were on stage at a venue. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, however, that does create... Uh, some difficult situations where the audience can start to take over the performance, which is not desirable for the performer usually. Uh, some audience members are not ready to lead a performance themselves, uh, but because of the informal nature of the event, they feel more comfortable taking a bigger role and it takes a, a delicate and careful hand uh, of a performer to guide that moment uh, to a uh, satisfying resolution for everyone and also maintaining control over their art. Now, I know you're speaking from personal experience, but are you thinking of a specific situation where that has happened? Recently, I was at a, uh, I was at a convention, 
where there was a panel on diversity. Mm-hmm. And it was a very conversational sort of panel. And there was one member of the audience uh, who started to take more time than perhaps was preferable for all involved while formulating a question. I feel like it would not be impressive were I to guess the gender, relative age, and sexual orientation of this audience member. I do not think it would be a very impressive guess at all. <laughs> but uh, the, the, uh, the elder member of the panel was able to sort of guide the questioner towards a ending uh, of their question so that they could move on and allow more voices to participate in the panel, which was the point of the panel. <laughs> like, in a, in a literal scale and in a meta scale, like, it was very symbolic Yeah, of the problem. I always find situations like that especially frustrating because they're so close. Like... I feel like if you're, you know, you're, you're at like a panel on anything, if the person has come to the panel, unless they're at the panel, like out and out and out baying for blood, like there to fight, Mm -hmm. it probably means that like on some level they're on side and they want to be part of, they're just excited to be one of the good guys. And yet their very presence and the way that they're interacting with said panel or situation is such a problem and you're like oh my god i'm glad you're here but shut up yes they they were very passionate about uh, learning more about diversity and how to uh present greater uh a greater number of voices that might not be otherwise represented but they were taking up so much time that it was getting in the way of more people having their voices heard so it was, it was, I just wanted to, to take this, uh, this person by the hand and like pat them on the shoulder and say, shh, listen. So like as someone who identifies, I, I believe, unless I've missed a Facebook update because I'm not <laughs> on Facebook, but like as someone who identifies as like a straight man. How do you, how do you feel in the current, like, landscape of media creation? Because you're an artist, you're writing things, you're making music and everything like that. And we're in an era now where we're, I feel like most of us are are more aware of minority voices and we're trying to hear minority voices and give platforms to minority voices, everything like that. And I feel that in some circles it can be very crushing, it can feel very crushing to be a straight man kind of being like hello i am also here and i just want to make art and i have feelings that i would like to express like how do you how do you personally navigate that you don't have to speak on behalf of your entire gender you are not a monolith i am a a straight white uh jewish atheist are not a monolith (laughs) sorry that was a bit loud no it's all right (laughs) The biggest lesson I ever learned about effective allyship from the point of view of a straight white male is not 
to take things personally. A good example of this is um, I have a friend in the Bay Area who has a very wonderful uh, warehouse space that they sometimes open to uh, touring friends for concerts. Mm -hmm. um, and I have performed there once uh, years ago, and I had a great time. Uh, always wanted to return. Um, however, I slowly noticed that they were turning me down uh, very diplomatically for shows while hosting uh, genderqueer voices and uh, femme and female voices artists who were touring. And at first I was a little upset by this, that they did not feel comfortable saying that they just want to host non-male voices. But then I realized they didn't necessarily know me very well. They might not feel comfortable having that conversation with me. And I learned not to take it personally. There are other places I can perform that other people might not have the opportunity or ability to perform in. And so losing one of those spaces to me, it was frustrating, but my privilege can take me to places that those folks cannot go. So I let it slide and uh, moved on and sought more opportunities elsewhere. I think that's a very healthy attitude to have about it. I mean, particularly in the kind of art that we make where it is me. I'm selling an evening with me. Mm -hmm. You, over the years, I feel like you've kind of developed like stage persona. It's, it's almost like we've gone in opposite directions, that you now have a stage character with Captain Redacted, mm -hmm. that you get up on stage and it's this whole story and this world that you create. Whereas I used to be like, hello, welcome to circus. I am Strangely. I teach you to juggle. And now I'm like, hi, uh, I'm Strangely. How's it going? I'm going to sing a song. But it's still very personal to you, even though mm -hmm. there's character work, you know, the echelon that we're creating in is very much about selling yourself. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to not take something personally, even though it, in a sense, it's all personal. It's, it's a very healthy way to be. I, and necessary. You are like, as an artist, we are going to get rejected far more times than we will be accepted. That's just the nature of the job. Yeah. That is, that's so true. And we get rejected all the time for millions of reasons that have nothing to do with anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, half the booking emails I send out, I, I don't get responses and I don't think it's because of anything to do with me. I think it's because whatever 17 year old runs the email account for that bar just fell through the cracks. Mm -hmm. You know, like we see that all the time in the art world. And I think spending any time wondering why Oregon country fair won't get their shit together and book good stuff mm -hmm. is less about anybody personally, individually, and more about them mm -hmm. and their ability to do stuff. Yeah. And even if there is a time when I am not booked because someone on the staff does not like what I do, that's, Taste. You can't argue taste. 
one of my favorite festivals in the world for years has refused to book me. Uh, which at this point I have to believe is because they just don't really like what I do. But I still volunteer. I still go every year because it's my favorite festival. I think you know the one I'm talking about. I think I know the one you're talking about. That is, I actually, I prefer things like that where there is an honesty to that happening because Mm -hmm. all art is subjective. So if you have someone who's pretending like they're arbiting empirical quality that's a lie that's why i've always found like a lot of music criticism to be so infuriating because someone is saying i have empirically proven that this band is the greatest band of the 20th century or similar whereas you know it's like that book we were looking at yesterday where that artist said weezer was one of the 101 artists you should listen to before you die and then their reason was, I started listening to Weezer when I was a teenager, and I still like them, and they bring back all these memories for me. It's like, you can't really argue with that. That's just someone's personal story. Mm-hmm. And so when there is a festival that's being booked more toward someone's personal taste, I don't know, for me personally, I'm like, this seems like, at least you're being honest about doing that. Mm-hmm. I, I value that kind of honesty like, I just, I wish more people were honest about a lot of the things. You know, if, if people were like, look, I'm racist because people who look different than me make me uncomfortable or whatever, there's an honesty there and we can have a dialogue with the honesty. Mm-hmm. But when you're hiding behind, like, a fake version of facts, it's not really honest. It's... Uh, I believe if you look at the skull circumference, you will find... Oh, God. <laughs> that is painfully accurate. Of a certain type of person. Yes. <laughs> I, I think one of the reasons that I personally try to have some empathy for that certain type of person is that I came from there. I mm. was very much... I don't want to say I was that kind of person, but I was, I was flirting with the origin story of being that kind of person when I was a teenager. And I feel like you were as well in a sense like what is the journey that got you to here where you're now interested in things like allyship and being straight but not narrow so in high school i definitely was in a place where i was one of those guys that thought that i was not being treated fairly by life i know i know Straight white male, middle class. Women didn't seem to like me generally for some reason. I was frustrated. I was confused. I was annoyed. I was upset. I was looking for a reason why my life did not seem to have meaning and satisfaction. And it took me a long time to sort through all those feelings and see that... The, what, the culture I was raised in encouraged a lot of that sense of alienation. And it's not a foreign group of people's fault. It's not women's fault for not finding me attractive. It's not queer people's fault for me feeling uncomfortable around them. 
it was inside of me and the way I was raised and the culture I was raised in and the systems of power that I grew up around, that I found natural, that I found inevitable. And I started to question a lot of the basic assumptions I had made about life and community and economics. And I started to see different ways of living, different possible futures, different possible pasts even, different ways history could have gone where everything would have been different. And part of it started with listening to people who were different than me and giving them the benefit of the doubt in the truest sense of that word. I had no reason to doubt their experience. And so why should I question it? Why not listen and hear what they had to say? And that changed my worldview entirely. And did that questioning, that, that opening up for you come from speculative fiction? Things like sci-fi and fantasy or alternate history? In part. But I think that the one piece of literature that shocked me into new awareness is a particularly notorious uh, essay from the mid to late 2000s. I'm not sure when it was actually written. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called Schrodinger's Rapist. And it was written by a... Uh, a novelist, a female novelist of romance fiction, I think, mm -hmm. who was just forced to uh, express something that was such a frustration inside her that men did not understand. It was an essay about how so many women experience harassment and uh, uh, gender-based assault and sexual assault from a very young age that they have to treat all men with wariness and it goes into detail describing countless scenarios that a man might find innocuous that a woman has to think about every facet to protect her safety and it was genuinely shocking to me to know that so many women that I knew lived with this anxiety and this low-level fear daily in all of their public and sometimes even private experiences. They had to live with this fear. And suddenly I started seeing my whole world completely differently. And that kind of shocked me into a lot of awareness that is still changing me to this day that moment where you sort of wake up to another possibility it's something that you see a lot in the queer queer community people's coming out stories that they were never presented with an option for whatever reason it mm -hmm. was it was just never it was never considered possible that they could be thing and i i think there's there's something very central to the human experience that 
until the right thing comes along and presents you with the option to think a certain way or to view a cultural moment in a certain way or whatever, you, you just won't. And it's not a willful ignorance. It's not a hateful reflex. It's just the fact that it's sometimes very difficult to go, I never thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, human beings are wired to sort of come up with shortcuts of how to think about things or how to consider things because that's how you survive and that's how mm-hmm. you get through the day without, you know, getting completely paralyzed, choosing which kind, which, to, not even which kind of tomato, but which tomato. <laughs> You know, yeah. you just have to grab a tomato and go. This one is red. Mom said red tomatoes were good. Let's get out of here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, those moments, being aware and open for those moments. And even though your particular moment wasn't speculative fiction, I I think that when I look at your work, the, the things that you write and create, you are seeking to seed those moments into the speculative fiction that you make. You know, you you write these science fiction ballads about the future where we don't have to work and there's universal basic income and what would that look like? Mm -hmm. And it sounds like starry-eyed dreaming, except for the fact that there are professional economists who are like, actually, there's some math that checks out on this. For decades, it's been a subject of low-key discussion. It's fascinating that it's coming out just now. For me that moment like it was some speculative fiction the i read the steampunk trilogy by paulo filippo mm-hmm. and that got me into a lot of paulo filippo's other work like uh there's a story that he wrote where i guess in the 1940s or 50, at some point in american history there was a significant portion of white americans who were like we should just send all the black people back to africa Mm-hmm. and so in this alternate history that has occurred and then it's set in a alternate 1980s where the first delegation from the repatriated black Africa comes to visit the United States and it, they're essentially Black Panther like it's like Wakanda like they show up in a spaceship and they have like lasers and teleportation and all that and the white people are like still like like rolling around and I think it, they have carriages like with horses like it's like they're basically like pre-cars mm-hmm. and you know when I first read that when I was like 14 I was like this is ridiculous but it stuck with me like I haven't read that story in almost 20 years and I still mm-hmm. remember all these details from it because it evoked the possibility of a world I had never considered mm-hmm. so speaking of possibility of a world that has never been considered yes let's talk about the future your future you have projects coming up what are you working on right now Uh, i'm just i'm honestly asking for me because i feel like we haven't (laughs) caught up on your future plans in a minute so it has been a minute um i'll catch you up with i'll catch up your listeners with the stuff that you already know all right um at time of recording, I am preparing to go to uh, Port Fringe in Portland, Maine, uh, later uh, in mid-June. I don't know when this is going to come out, but uh, pro- perhaps after that. Uh, I, I think we'll probably drop this uh, within the next two weeks. Okay. So, listeners, 
in Portland, Maine, if you catch this before June 18th of 2019, uh, please find me in uh, Portland, Maine. Anyway, um, that, was, that was the worst plug conceivable. Um, I'm also preparing to take my show Apocalypse Songs to the Edinburgh Fringe. Uh, this is my first time going to Scotland. It's my first time going to Edinburgh. It's my first time going to Edinburgh Fringe. Uh, I'm probably going to be overwhelmed, overworked, and overjoyed uh, to be presenting this show uh, before an international crowd of it, hopefully more than two people per night. Um, hopefully. Um, if you, I, I gotta stop you there. If you get over two people a night, you're way above the average fringe show audience. That's what I've heard. <laughs> I'm nervous. Um, in September, I'm going to be doing a Seattle-based run of Apocalypse Songs here in my neighborhood of Ballard. It's going to be a science fiction double feature with my friend Nicole Cabe, who's doing her own show called Effing Robots which is about her romantic experiences with artificial intelligence. It is part science fiction, but shockingly, there is a large amount of science fact in it as well. I've seen that show. It is fantastic. It is so good. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, and after that, my future is a great nebulous void that hopefully wonderful things will walk into. I'm I'm exploring the possibility of an Apocalypse Songs podcast. Uh, I started writing a novel uh, last year that I have not touched in many months uh, that I may come back to. I have a whole album almost ready to go uh, to follow Apocalypse Songs that I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to do. Uh, 2020 is... Uh, very strange and open, and I don't know what's to come for me. So you're saying you don't have 2020 vision. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. I've, uh, only, got, I've only got another, what, 18 months to make that oh joke? Oh my god. Well, it's gonna be the worst year of all of our lives, so you might as well make it a little flexible. I mean, I feel like in 2021, everybody's gonna be like, hindsight is 2020. <sighs> this joke is never going to fucking end. And you can bleep that if you want. <laughs> I said it. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the future... I have many futures. That's all I'm going to say. I like it. Thank you so much for appearing on my podcast. Like, you were one of the guests I was looking forward to having on here because I think you're just such a delightful nexus of folk music, social awareness, and talent. Oh, yeah, thank the you. the triple threat. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for appearing on my podcast. Thank you for having me, strangely. So that was my chat with my friend Aaron Shea. If you want to learn out more about Aaron, you can head over to aaronjshea.net, A-A-R-O-N-J shay.net. You can also follow Aaron on Instagram at Aaron J. Shea, and you can hear all of Aaron's music over on Bandcamp. Just type in AaronJShea.bandcamp.com. 
While I was putting this episode together, I shot a text over to Aaron and asked if I could play one of his songs on the podcast for you folks. So this is The End of Work by Aaron J. Shea. We put on our aprons, we put on our ties, we put on our coveralls, and let another day go by. Full time or part time, it all feels the same. When you wake up in the morning feeling tired and tame, closing time comes, you punch the clock. Close the gate and fasten the lock. Then it's the end of work, it's the end of the day You're emotionally spent and everyone around you feels the same way No resolution, just passing the time Churning out a living, paid out in nickels and dimes Oh, 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 it's the end of work On your way home, you think a change has got to come A radical solution to all of our conundrums The safety net has fallen apart And as for Congress, where the hell do I start? You imagine a time when things were less dire When some people could actually afford to retire and for any millennials out there who have never heard the word retire as a actual thing that will happen in their lifetime and are unfamiliar with the term, allow me to explain. It's the end of work, it's the end of a career when you can just sit back and savor all your golden years and do the things you wanted to do while you were busy working away your youth. Someday soon, we'll see a transition. You show up for work, and a computer's taking your position. You ask your boss what's going on. She says, It's the post scarcity economy. The obligation to work is gone. You step outside, you're totally free. And someone hands you a benefit card to cover your basic needs. Including food, utilities and rent, and maybe some entrepreneurial expenses. You got all the time that you could ever use. Oh, what do you do first? What have you got to lose? It's the end of work. It's the end of just having a job for the sake of getting by. It's the end of work. It's the end of unemployment and the beginning of hard AI. It's the end of work. It's the end of our current labor market paradigm. Whoa, oh, 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 oh. It's the end of work. Oh, 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 oh. It's the end of work. Oh, oh.
Here's a thought. The difficulties of the present often result from the realities of the past. You may notice the somewhat dismissive way I comment on the current cultural zeitgeist at the top of every show. Leaving aside the fact that I love saying time ghost in German, a translation I know thanks to Aaron Shea, I do this because I think we are currently too focused on the singular moment in which we exist. Now one could make any number of arguments about the importance of the present, Buddhist philosophy, Yoda's impassioned admonition to Luke to focus on where he was. I think the idea is best summed up by Master Ugwe in Kung Fu Panda. Yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, and today is a gift. That is why it is called the present. And yet, I would assert one can have too much of any good thing. Simply put, too much of the present as it is, pardon the turn of phrase, presented to us today is not healthy. I won't go into detail about it here, but suffice to say that news outlets and social media benefit from making us feel bad. Just as one small example, consider if you feel any better or worse about your own life after scrolling through friends' social media posts. Never mind the fact that on some level you know they are sharing curated versions of their lives, it still creates a feeling of lesser worth. Human beings tend to focus on the negative because that is what kept us alive for the first 2,000 millennia we were running around. The content, credulous Australopithecines did not last long. Furthermore, the current divides in our world are exhausting. Politics, religion, Star Wars fandom. That last one is probably the most frightening because it is something we all agree is made up. So what's the alternative? I've chosen to disengage, to back away, and participate less in the conversation, capital C. To be clear, I still call my senators, vote, donate to charities, and spend less than 45 minutes a day catching up on current events, but that 45 minutes is finite and relegated to its own block of time. I don't have up-to-the-minute notifications pinging my phone throughout the day, and I don't wake up and immediately check Twitter. Now, some may argue that I am privileged to disengage, to not plug into the singularity that has turned us all into a kind of cyborg with a second brain in our hand or nestled against our glutes in a back pocket. I'm, I'm sorry to pause what is doubtless a touchy subject for some folks, but seriously, I am just old enough to remember a time before the internet was ubiquitous, and now we carry it around next to our most intimate orifices, and nobody seems to think it's weird. I might need to do a piece on that. But I would argue that I'm able to engage more fully and in different ways, hence my endorsement of history. I read history because it is what I would call engaged escapism. This is not a dig at pure escapism, which also has value. Even the most out-there fantasy or sci-fi can provide insight into a conflict resolution or help you develop empathy. I myself greatly benefited from Matt Reeves' recent Planet of the Apes trilogy. Seriously, if you want to learn about how difficult it is to de-escalate conflict, go watch those films. Neil Gaiman summarized this point with far more eloquence than I could ever hope for when he wrote, Fairy tales are more than true, not because they teach us that dragons exist, but that they tell us that dragons can be beaten. So what do I mean by engaged escapism? There are ways to distance oneself from the present moment while still engaging with information and resources which inform it. Why not read a book about the history of Native American cultures in North America? I just finished reading S.C. Gwynn's Empire of the Summer Moon, a history of the Comanches, and boy did it change my perspective. For years, I've been enamored with the historical narrative of the pastoral nomads of Central Eurasia. The Huns, the Tatars, the Mongols, the Dothraki. 
okay, those are fictional, but they are Mongols in all but name. Double R. Marty even took the Mongolian word for fermented horse milk, a popular Mongolian beverage, and named the Dothraki swords after it, Etik. To find out that North America had its own version of these nomadic raiders who routinely outfoxed more settled peoples with their superior mastery of an emerging technology appropriated from their settled rivals, it's just amazing. It was horses for the Comanches, the written alphabet for the Mongols. I started thinking about this when I read Jerusalem, the biography, Simon Sebag Montefiore's delicious history of the eponymous city. Having been raised in conservative North American Christian circles, I'd always believed that the conflicts around the divisions in the Holy Land were an age-old problem dating back millennia. Though conflict has existed in any area of human habitation, the history I found was far more colorful and multicultural than I ever expected. For instance, many leading Jerusalem families 150 years ago would celebrate shared religious holidays together regardless of Jewish, Muslim, or Christian allegiance. Their love of Jerusalem transcended their sectarian differences. Speaking of multiculturalism, that same book informed me that Muhammad's army in the 600s was almost equal thirds, Muslim, Christian, and Jewish. Initially, all peoples of the book were welcome. Now, I'm not suggesting that all differences be cast aside for kumbayas around the campfire, but I am pointing out that things are far more nuanced than many modern politicians would have them be painted. The grander thesis I'm stumbling around with here is the idea that there are many different ways to be engaged and informed. We are constantly being told that the only way to be engaged, to be useful, to be empathetic, is to know everything that is going on right now. A requirement which is frankly, impossible. Nobody can know that. I once heard a data scientist refer to trying to comprehend the amount of information coming out of computer networks as trying to drink from a fire hose. This was said in 1996. I, I'm reading this off of a script, and even reading what I wrote, it still boggles my mind that someone in 1996 thought computer networks were too much. I do think that history provides a way to three-dimensionalize a person, nation, or a problem. It allows us to color in the motivations and backgrounds of our opponents and gives clarity to current problems. We are constantly asking, how did we get here, about our current age? The answers are readily available in numerous resources and often simply boil down to people in the past doing the best that they could with the information that was available to them at the time. That's not an excuse for the transgressions of past generations, just an observation that they probably behaved in their present moment similar to how we do in ours. Hence my assertion, the difficulties of the present often result from the realities of the past. If I may borrow a bit from Mr. Gaiman, history is important because it tells us not that dragons can be beaten, but that they have been beaten before. I need more coffee. Hokey fright. Have you heard about Everly? I guess I've been on a Salma Hayek kick lately. If you're a fan of bottle episodes, over-the-top action scenes, or very tightly written films where you learn everything you need to know about anyone present through their actions and their dialogue, this might be a film for you. Salma plays Everly, a woman who has been the prisoner and unwilling concubine to a Yakuza boss for the last four years. As the film begins, Everly's plan to escape finally explodes into motion with her killing the five men in the apartment with her, receiving a wound in the process. What follows for the next 90 minutes is wave after wave of increasingly ridiculous bad guys attacking the apartment and trying to kill Everly. 
Like, it starts with Yakuza thugs, but by the end, we've got supernatural characters straight out of Big Trouble in Little China. My favorite thing about this film is the fact that every time you think Everly is beaten, that you've seen her action hero turn ended, she figures out a way free. Everly is resourceful, intelligent, and tough as nails in all the best ways. Sure, most of the characters in this film are pretty one-dimensional, but that scarce matters when the action is so glorious. Even though she was pushing close to 50 when this was filmed, Selma has the action hero chops actresses half her age would kill for. I'm confused as to why she's not been drafted into the John Wick series yet. Now, the action in this is over the top, brutally so, and some of the violence has a sexual tinge to it that may be off-putting to some viewers, but I would still argue that this is the kind of film we need more of. Not the sexual violence part of things, but the small, single-location, feminine rise-to-power narrative. In an age of grandiose spectacle and CGI armies clashing toward each other, there is something thrilling about watching a single woman go toe-to-toe with all the bad guys. The gimmick of keeping the story claustrophobically linked to one location works so well here because we identify with Everly's feeling of being trapped. It's not quite on the level of Buried, a film I highly recommend starring the pre-everyone-knew-he-was-amazing Ryan Reynolds, but it's still pretty focused. This is a B-movie through and through, and there is more than a hint of the old grindhouse flavor of some of Robert Rodriguez's earlier flicks, but I kind of dig it. If you're looking for something to scratch that old-school action itch with a rock-solid performance by Hayek, this film could be your thing. I'm not saying it's good, but at least now you've heard about it. Song of the Week. This is a song I wrote called No Names, No Masters, based on a direction taped the refrigerator at the house where I live. I live at kind of a punk house here in Bellingham, Washington, and it's very important that you write your name on your food items in the fridge with a sharpie, or someone else will probably eat them. Hence, no names, no masters. Again, 
friend and mark it with your name. Mailbag. I didn't get any physical mail this week, but I did get a text from a listener that said, I just wanted to let you know as an avid listener of podcast, I listened to your latest episode. It's really good. I enjoyed it. Great job. I can't even begin to express how much it means to me to hear from a listener that they are enjoying the work that I'm making and that they're connecting with what I'm putting together. I put so much of myself into this podcast. I know it's still a relatively new thing, but I love writing these essays for you folks and just thinking about stuff. For years, I've found myself having these long, you know, meandering conversations with friends where we start digging into ideas like depictions of masculinity in action movies or whatever, and I just, I think about this stuff a lot. I, I have been a very conscious consumer of media, books, films, whatever, for years, and to get a chance to have a place to share some of this stuff is so wonderful. Not only that, but to spotlight interesting guests. I hope you folks enjoy this. If you have a recommendation for a topic or a guest, please uh, shoot me a message. You can send postcards, letters, bits of taxidermy to strangely. 1000 Harris Ave, Bellingham, Washington, 98225, number 21. I really look forward to hearing from you folks, and please send those comments or letters or messages. That stuff really, really keeps me going. It's been a rough week here in Strangely Town, and just having listeners reach out means the world to me. That's it for this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. As always, the podcast is supported by my incredible patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a supporter of the podcast, check out patreon.com strangely to find out how you can do that. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is produced at Sonic Suitcase Studios in fairly fine, fiscally responsible Fairhaven, Washington. Sonic Suitcase Studios is located in the Morgan Block Building, part of the People's Land Trust. Is one that you have heard countless times, and one that I say countless times per year, and one that audiences never tire of. 
How long does it take to tune a banjo? How long? I don't know. No one's ever done it. <laughs> hey! Strangely and Friends, the podcast is a Herringbone Society production.